Greetings there, SE Land. This is Twig, Anthony Twig Wheeler. This is a episode, episode number 78 of Twig's SE Reflections podcast series. This is an audio archive collection of thoughts and reflections made for SE students and practitioners everywhere. Folks that are studying the psychobiological literature, the new traumatology, somatic healing arts, applying that to their helping care practice, their professional practice meeting with clients, helping folks feel better. That's the goal here. We're going to chat up a theme. Theme today, episode 78, Don't Avoid the Text. It's a quote, actually, from a professor I had back at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. I was young. I was enthusiastic. I was at a liberal arts school where people share a lot about their feelings and their impressions about the world, their passions. We were young, passionate, and in a class with Dr. Levinsky. I was 19 years old, I think, at the time. And, you know, the Evergreen State College, it's, it's a little different than the typical university or college in America Maybe um, a lot of universities, you, you go 18, 19, 20 years old, and you sit in a classroom, maybe 100 other people in the class. There's a professor at the front with a microphone, and they give a presentation, a lecture. You sit there, take notes, go home, study, read. At some point, there's a test. You pass the test. It all works in your favor. You don't. Okay, that that's a problem. At the Evergreen State College, it was different. There were no tests. There were no grades, even. There were evaluations. We would write about ourselves, and the faculty would write about our performance and such. And even our classes wouldn't be these big 100-person group things. They would be 16, 18, 24 students, one or two teachers in the room. We'd sit in a circle, sometimes a circle around desks, you know, so it's kind of more like a square. But we'd be in a circle. We'd have had reading assignments. I was studying philosophy. I wanted to be a philosopher. And uh, we were studying philosophy, Socrates and Plato, the greats, back in the day. Even uh, we, we touched in on Babylonia and things farther afield. When we would come together in class, we would sit in these circles and share our thoughts and reflections about the books that we were reading, the ideas that we were supposedly investigating in our other-than-class time. And there was this phenomena that was happening. I think it's probably still there. I, I, can't, I can't know for sure. But it was happening at the time. We would, we would come together and we would start talking about ourselves. You know, we were reading Socrates or, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we would start, we would almost, it was almost like, it was almost like we hadn't read the books you know, we, we instead, we maybe like grabbed from the title or maybe the first page or two some impression about what it was supposed to be about. Maybe even got a hold of the cliff notes and we would reference it for a moment and then we'd start telling all of our fellow seminar participants, our classroom participants, we'd start sharing our feelings or our impressions or our reality or these other things that we thought about when we read the book. And, and like I say, it was almost like we hadn't read the books. Sometimes, I think the truth is that we hadn't, you know. Um, other times, I think that it comes down to this quote that Dr. Levinsky 
eventually kind of broke out on us. He kind of stopped the room. He, he, he wasn't like a, the teacher in the sense that he was there to tell us all of his wisdom. He was there to help facilitate the conversation so we could all find our own wisdom and share it with each other intelligently. He, he kind of slammed on the table. He said, please, please stop avoiding the text. Now, he didn't say it like that. He was a taciturn, older man, Eastern European ancestry. He he had a, a voice that I don't have, but he, he like slams down. He's like, please stop avoiding the text. It, it stilled all of us. It, we, we didn't know what to say. Maybe because we hadn't read the book, but but he, he, he certainly got my attention. At that moment, it kind of went into my head that there was this thing that I do, I could do, had done before, where if I had read a book and then was writing a book report, I might miss the opportunity to actually reference the text, actually attend to the task at hand, and instead kind of be caught and taken astray by my impressions and thoughts and emotions and things like that. Don't avoid the text. Over the years, I've been, um, yeah, that's some years now, and I've been, I've been looking around at who and what, where I and other people avoid the text. And what I finally started to come to some time ago was that it wasn't just inside of like, when you're reading, you know, ancient literature, you you don't actually read it sometimes, and you then can't discuss what they actually say in it, so you maybe you avoid the text. But there are other places. Like I, I for example, when I first went and started learning wilderness living arts skills, like Stone Age living arts, how to live without matches or even steel, like tan hides and make stone tools and things like that. When I first started studying that, what we call experimental archaeology. When I started studying that years back, I noticed that there, you know, there were people who knew all of those things and they were my teachers or other participants at trainings and gatherings, workshops and stuff that I would go to that were engaged and involved with those skills for a long period of time. And they would they would engage the process that we might be in differently than I would. And I was a kind of intellectual urbanite, had a hankering for the bush and the wilderness and really wanted to learn how to live out in the wild and such. But I had no real foundation for experience for that. I'd kind of grown up playing Nintendo video games and watching television and skateboarding in the street and such. I didn't really have like a whole lot of engagement with the earth before this. And I would get at these gatherings, these events, and I'd, I'd watch people uh, like my friend Digger, I eventually became my friend. I watched this man, he's kind of just golden brown and all musculature and just really dynamic. And he, he teaches people how to tan hides and do all these kind of interesting things out in the wilderness. And and this man, Digger, he, uh, there you go, Twig and Digger, so you get an idea who my, my people are. Well, Digger, he, he I saw him. I saw him move this log. Well, I saw other people trying to move this log. That was the task. It was to move this log, uh, roll it, move it a few feet, and big, big piece of wood, big tree log, and and these people are kind of like pushing on it and, and kind of you know trying to get it and it won't go. And and Digger walks over, and he's he's wearing like you know, classic 
tanned hides, you know, deer hide clothing. And he, and he just kind of like leans down and pushes his bare feet into the ground and like leans against this log and just rolls it right into place where everybody was trying to get it to. And when I saw him do it, I realized that he wasn't avoiding the log. That quote came back to me, don't avoid the text. I saw it and I don't avoid the log. And now I can tell you for sure, if I was involved in that, if I had been pushing on that log, it would have been like my hands would have been kind of touching the log and my fingers would have been kind of pressing into the log and and I would have kind of had my feet in my shoes kind of like trying to dig into the ground a little bit and somehow my back and my butt would have been pushing away from the log like I would have been like pushing my body away from the log rather than pushing the log away from where it was sitting I would not have leaned into it the way that Digger did I wouldn't have impressed upon it in the way that was necessary I would have been so timid about that almost as if I I could like just kind of think my way through making this log move I wouldn't have engaged the text I wouldn't have engaged the task at hand I would have stepped sideways of it and maybe hoped that nobody would notice or some such like that I think I think maybe this just comes down in a whole lot of different ways in life in general that we avoid the text we avoid the task at hand there's phone calls that need to be made or you know taxes that need to be you know worked out numbers and such and and we'll avoid these things they have to be done they they need our attention and our engagement in order to get in on them and and make them successful and there's a there's a thing that a lot of us can find ourselves maybe with some subjects and not others but we can find ourselves avoiding the text avoiding the task well more power to you everybody me too I, I I still do this in so many different ways in fact I have to tell myself sometimes wash the dishes don't avoid the text wash the dishes like don't avoid this thing that needs to be done don't avoid the task at hand wash the dishes I feel so much better when you're not reproducing your anxiety by not having attended to the task, but instead completing the task and feeling that you don't have that weighing over you anymore. You can be like, wow, I'm successful here rather than I'm, I'm succeeding at avoiding this. Don't avoid the text. Well, here's a thing for us as SE practitioners. Oh, it's kind of <laughs> paradoxical. Some amount of our work is dedicated to avoiding the text okay it, it, it's not not like exclusively and not exhaustively and not as much as a lot of us seem to do where we're trying to avoid the red vortex or we're trying to avoid the trauma vortex or we're trying to avoid freeze or we're trying to like make sure that that thing doesn't happen or we're trying to avoid overwhelm or we're trying to avoid talking about the story or we're trying to avoid the thing that is calling people's attention already and and really is calling their attention because it needs to be attended to most likely at some point someday in some way it's the task at hand people come in and they have a complaint and they identify their complaint as this overwhelming anxiety or this memory that they keep having and and we hear those things and we think oh no 
don't reinforce that. Don't go into that. Don't don't pay attention to that. We need to get more pendulation and stabilize blue, which is true, we do. And we need to have more orientation, which is true, we do. And we need to have more space from reiterating that distressing signal. It's true, we do. Not at the not at the cost and the consequence of never never contacting the text, never addressing the task at hand. It's a it's an interesting paradox because like the traumatology literature, especially like the new traumatology kind of stuff, like Bessel van der Kolk and Bob Scare and, you know, this kind of stuff. Even even Stephen Porges. Stephen Porges has a wonderful line. He's like, our preeminent task, our first thing to do, right? Our preeminent task is to is to establish the conditions of safety, the neuroception of safety, of sufficient safety. Now, I've just avoided the text. I know that quote, but I've let it go. So now I'm paraphrasing. But it's something just like, something just like our first thing that we have to do is assure that we're signaling a sufficient safety to the nervous system. And and that's that's not coming exactly from a clinical perspective. That's coming from a nervous system perspective that if you're going to help the nervous system move from a neuroception where it is anticipating or receiving the signals, whether they're internally generated, like somatic cues from inside or visceral states from inside or thought processes from inside, or they're externally generated, which, you know, hopefully if it's an externally generated neuroception of threat, you're not trying to get the nervous system to perceive safety. You're going to try to run with that, fight with that, freeze if necessary, wait until safety reestablishes itself. I guess the thing to say is that if we're renegotiating or changing or trying to get the nervous system to be more accurate in its neuroception, if it's misreading the environment and signaling unnecessarily that I feel in danger, our first task is to try to like help the nervous system know that this environment that we're in right now isn't dangerous. It's a tricky kind of thing to do sometimes when so many alarm bells are going off and just talking with somebody might put them in some kind of altered state, like they're in some kind of danger. But it's a truism that here that in our envi- in our work, in our environment, we're trying to establish this sense of safety, which could very well mean that at first we're avoiding the text, avoiding the subjects, avoiding the things that bothers people, avoiding the reason that they want our help, avoiding talking about all the pain and suffering that they've been through and that they're convinced maybe that that they need to share with us there are there are times particularly toward the beginning where we're doing the funniest oddest thing we're in a service industry we're telling people that we're there to help them we're informed about the suffering that people go through and we're prepared inside of ourselves to listen to that suffering and to hold that suffering and to understand it and appreciate it in a way that maybe other people out in the world, you know, that without such exposure, without such training, or without the longevity of kind of having sat with so many people in distress, maybe other people aren't prepared to hear that, don't want to hear that. We're there to listen, lend our support and our empathy, guide people's attention toward, you know, noticing of themselves in ways that we see will be clinically helpful, relevant. And at the beginning, a lot of times we, we, we don't want to engage any of that. We don't, we, we're just like, oh, good, glad you're here. Let's do something other than what you think we're here for. 
let's look around the room. Let's, let's feel our feet on the floor. Let's press our back against the chair. Let's talk about the weather. It's, it's an estranged thing. It's a strange thing. And you could almost get the impression that uh, some of us as SEPs don't want to attend to people's problems. Which, you know, from a bodywork perspective, I can tell you that that doesn't work. You know, there's, a, there's an old bodywork kind of thing. It's a service industry, right? People are coming to you for a service and, and they expect you to attend to that service. Well, they come in, they, somebody says, oh, I have this pain in my shoulder. And maybe you've had, you've had, you know, something more, not that it wouldn't be enough on its own, but something other than just classic Swedish massage or deep tissue massage, when you're going to just like fluff up the body, feels good, good stuff, yummy, yummy. And it doesn't necessarily kind of get into the cause of that shoulder tension. Okay, so there's another system there. You might press it right into that. You just go, you know, not avoiding the text at all. You're going to go deep tissue, just like numb that area out, make it all soft and loose and pliable and frozen again so we don't feel it as much. And, and wow, isn't that nice how it doesn't feel so tight? These are different styles out there, but some styles, definitely uh, as you do a whole lot of training in body work, you get a more structural integration perspective, right? Like a, informed by Rolfing or like structural patterns, postural patterns. You take a step back from people's pain and you look more at their system, more at their organization of their body, how they hold their backpack, how they walk, the turnout in their hips and at their feet, whether or not they're um, overly taut in one side of their body than another. And when you, when you see those things, you often can see that the pain in the shoulder is only a reflection of a more systemic problem. And here's this thing that in body work we know, hopefully you know this, if a person names their problem as a shoulder pain, you start attending to their hips and the turnout in their leg and how their you know, quads seem to be overly taut and that's causing a compensatory pattern postural kind of adaptation all the way up through their shoulder and making them extra tense in their shoulder. So you, you kind of go more toward the systemic source of it all. If you never touch the shoulder, even if their shoulder feels better, it's very likely that they feel unheard and unmet and like you avoided their problem. It's somewhat likely that they're not going to come back, even if they feel better. It's just kind of a thing that we talk about as body workers. Like you got to touch the text. You got to touch the problem at hand. Even if you know that what needs to happen is something around it or somewhere else. Even if you know that by touching it, you'll, um, you could maybe just kind of bring attention to it in a way that you don't want to. So you might just have to touch it a little bit and touch it as less as you can and as gently as you can and as as brightly and smartly as you can and get the heck out of there. <laughs> well, okay, I think you can see it, right? There are people that come to us, they've got problems. Uh, from a nervous system perspective, a lot of times attending directly to the problem, although it can be done and you get really savvy, you can enter right into a person's problem and look for the pendulation inside they're in. At the same time, a lot of us, we've been trained and we, we think about how we'd like to settle things some amount first. We'd like to have more distance, more orientation, a shared language, shared skills, whatever, whatever. We avoid the text for a time. And at some point, it just has to be said, um, people will feel disregarded if we don't attend to their complaint. If if we 
think that we can always avoid touching the red vortex if we never establish the actual movement or flow, the allowance of actual pendulation, if we just always avoid the problem state, if we always avoid the text, you know, we'll just, um, we'll miss the grand opportunity, which is actually that when there's sufficient pendulation, when there's sufficient support, when there's sufficient empathy and accompaniment, you can go right into the text, the problem, the horror story, the worst thing that happened to people. You don't do that at the beginning. Sure, you got to set up all kinds of initial conditions and preconditions and setting conditions and all kinds of different things that you know have to come into play first. But eventually, you get to sit with people in the honesty of how they feel about things, in the honesty of how much things hurt, in the honesty of how this tightness comes on and we don't have to run away from it or how I get really spacey and distant and we don't have to run away from it. Yeah, it takes a lot of preconditions to let some of those happen. And they're eventually the task at hand. You know, recently I was talking with some folks about the different levels of renegotiation and it's fascinating to think about how something that I might think might be able to find just a completely different alternative opinion somewhere else. And at the same time, me saying this here, I could say that there are like these different levels of renegotiation wherein some of them incorporate, engage, actualize, manifest, bring forward independent, involuntary, self-protective responses, or said another way, instructions that have been developed by the nervous system that are waiting for the opportunity to execute themselves and integrate the change of that execution and the change state after the fact, right? I do this feeling that I've been wanting to push. I get to push. I feel how I got to push. I feel the after effect of that. My nervous system starts to transition into other phases. Other subsystems come online. I reorient. I feel the deactivation, perhaps the discharge things change of their own. At that level, it's kind of an intrinsic renegotiation wherein you get to do more or less what the body itself wanted to do. And it goes all the way through freeze. You know, it's like I just, I freeze. I, I want to just disappear. And, and if you have the conditions set up that you can allow that to happen and not avoid the text as it were, but you can just feel how distant it wants to go. Just like in so many famous Peter Levine sessions or even sessions perhaps that you've had, you can see and feel and watch how a person's psyche and consciousness and somatic sense and everything gets just really, really wide or really far away or, or just splits off into a million little atoms and then hits a certain apogee, a certain time-limited nature of freeze immobility and the dorsal vagal system somehow starts to let go. The sympathetic system is going to start to come back on. We're going to move through a completely normal biological process. And one thing leads to the next things consolidate. Again, a person comes back into their experience, back into their body as it were. Maybe they were in the experience the whole time associated as they were dissociated and they come back in incorporeal. They feel it. Maybe it moves through somatic fight-flight kinds of behavior and feelings of pushing or kicking or running or just having the breath go really fast, the heart rate going faster, and that hits then an apogee and starts to settle out. And you can see how 
that distance, that that ever, that oh so far, oh that dissociation, how that was a part of what the body was always trying to do. At some level, renegotiation is actually just allowing the body to do what it always wanted to do. And you can see how that was created within the precipitating event, kind of shock trauma kind of thing, like isolated incidents kind of stuff. You can see how those instructions for those actions, whether they be passive on the freeze and mobility side or active on the fight flight kind of side, they're, they're intrinsic to the organism. They're created for itself. And at different other levels of, of renegotiation, you know, you can help imagine what wants to happen. You can, um, at another level, you can input a suggestion. Oh, well, just see, the, see it as a, as a scene that you can move further away. And we'll just move the scene as far away as we need to in order to be able to still watch the scene. It could be here on the other side of the room. It could be on the other side of the wall, down the hall, out on the street. It could be on the other side of town. It could be on the other side of the country. It could be out on the other side of the moon, a little postage stamp on the other side of the moon. But you can still see it. Heck, you know, it could be all the way out in Pluto. Pluto is so far away, it's so small, it's not even a planet anymore. It's way, way, way out there. You could, you could come in and help the renegotiation, the ability to contact these feelings, to maybe in this case see the image, be able to participate with the felt sense experience of what happens when I see the image, but to be able to move the image, titrate it far enough away so that it becomes safe enough to be able to engage it. And that's yeah, okay, it's a renegotiation. It's giving the organism a different opportunity or an opportunity opportunity to feel these things in a different way than the repetitive, oh, I get distressed in the same kind of way every time I feel this. Instead, we could have this opportunity to experience something new of the same signals, thus creating a kind of renegotiation that says, oh, wow, when I feel that way, I don't have to have that same impression. Oh, when I see that image, I don't have to have that same feeling. Great, great, great. All these different levels of more intervention, less intrinsic. This is exactly what the body wants to do, but perhaps necessary to have that intervention in order to be successful at that layer of negotiation or that level of allowance for the body to do itself. Some kind of avoiding of the text here, right? It's kind of like a measurement of like, how much, how much should we allow this, this that it's already calling everybody, calling her her, his attention through and through this freeze, this fight, this anxiety. How much do I just allow that to happen? Or how much do I try to balance that with something else? How much do I avoid that at some level, some place, some ideal direction? We don't avoid the text. We read the book. We think about it. We think about what was said in it. We attend to it. We reference it. We come back to it. It can be incorporated into ourselves, and we, um, we don't sound just so foolish keeping the attention away from the text all the time, keeping ourselves away from being able to incorporate that knowledge. People tell you that they've got attention. People tell you they've got a thing. Don't avoid some kind of recognition of it. Don't avoid some kind of tapping or touching or even investigating it. Yeah, maybe you need to avoid it structure it, give it something else to do. Maybe you need to provide more leaning toward other elements of experience so as not to be sucked into that. 
once that's less necessary. Don't avoid the text. Lean in there. See what happens next. Okay. Take good care. Bye bye now. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And here's a tracking twig moment. You should know that Twig's SE Reflections podcast now has a Facebook page. Facebook, you know, that kind of like phenomenon on the internet where everybody shares stuff. Twig's SE Reflections is right on there. You just Google Facebook Twig's SE Reflections and it's going to come right up. Or Google Twig's SE Reflections and maybe that take you to the website, liberationispossible.org backslash reflections. Or maybe Google Facebook SE Reflections and it'll come right up. Anyway, it's out there, and if you're on Facebook, then it's a way to get news and little pieces of this and that coming along with this project. Okay, that's that.